I still uh, remember very well the day I was a junior uh, in college at Mississippi State University, and I remember I was a little nervous because I had to make this uh, crucial phone call to my family. And back in those days, this is before internet and before cell phones, and uh, to make a phone call all the way to Puerto Rico, it was expensive, and you had to get a lot of change, put a lot of coins if, once you find a payphone. Uh, and in fact, we used to coordinate these things. I would write a letter to my parents, and I said, I need to talk to you uh, two weeks from now, this Saturday at this time, and they would be at home waiting for the phone call. And uh, my, my father right away picked up the phone and said, what's going on? You okay? And I said, well, I just wanted you to know that I'm changing my major. <laughs> and uh, there was this awkward silence, and then I said, what are you doing? <laughs> And I said, well, I'm actually not going to apply to vet school to be a veterinarian. I'm going to go to seminary because I've decided to follow Christ in a different call. Again, silence. My mom interrupted the silence and said, well, that's wonderful, son. And there was more silence. <laughs> and my mom decided to help again and said, what's a church planner? Because I had mentioned that. And it was amazing how something that... Uh, was so crucial, so important, and to me sounded so amazing, actually brought some tension in, in my house. Uh, my dad was not questioning uh, the Christian faith or that he would call somebody even like me, but he was nervous about my own abilities to make judgments at that time. Uh, I was not known for being the most spiritual person or at home uh, in that case. But imagine then the tension that comes to a group of people when somebody changes a direction like that, transforms the expectations, even as Jesus did with their disciples in a night such as this, when uh, at a time when the ministry was going forward, in amazing ways, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, starts speaking of his death. And he starts, starts speaking about that he's going to have to go away and what that, that do to the disciples. I want us to read then in John 13, beginning in verse 31, about this tension, at least a glimpse of it, but then how and what did Jesus do for the disciples for such a time? It's in your bulletin, uh, John 31, beginning, 13, beginning in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word, that it is true even to us in these days that trust and believe in you by the grace and gift of the Holy Spirit. For in you we pray, Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, obviously, when we read these passages, even if you start in verse 12, where Jesus starts speaking of his death, his impending death that he's going to go away, and he washes the feet of his disciples. 
um, it brings a lot of tension. Even you can read it all the way through verse uh, chapter 16. Uh, there are times when uh, even Jesus seems to uh, lose patience with the disciples because he's such a challenging, such a, uh, a tense time. But one of the things that Jesus does during this conversation, this Last Supper, is to try to not only demonstrate love to them, but to give them the assurance that God is still seeking His glory. Even in the passage we read, five times the word glorified is mentioned. But then to uh, notice the tension that's there, He says to them, As I have said to the Jews before, you cannot go where I will go. I also say to you as well. You cannot follow me where I am going. And that had to be hard for the disciples. I mean, I can imagine the disciples at some points when Jesus would challenge the Jews and say, you do not know me. You do not know where I come from. You cannot go where I am going. I could see the disciples in the background going like, yes, that's right. You can't go there. And then now Jesus sees them and speaking to them and says, as I told them that they did not could not follow me where I was going, I also tell you, you cannot. And what that did for them, even at that moment. So Jesus, of course, as he is bringing that truth that created tension among them, is providing a context, a place for them. And what is the answer? What does he give to them that will help them to even get through that? Well, he gives them love. In fact, it's spoken of in here as a new commandment. Love for them, to love, like no other love have ever been seen before. Now, obviously, the idea of loving one another is not a new commandment. I mean, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 19, already it said, you shall love your neighbor uh, as thyself. So what is new about this commandment? Well, one of the things that is new is that Jesus is raising the bar. Jesus is saying it is no longer enough for you to just love your neighbor. You must love those that are not your neighbors. You're no longer to love those that are easy to love or those that it is convenient for you to love. Your love must be based in a new context, the context of the way in which I have loved you. Of course, what's amazing even that is that even before Jesus spoke these words to them, before he spoke about this love, he gave them a powerful visual aid of what this looked like. What did Jesus do? He approached them, and um, he took out his uh, upper garment, his outer garment, and he took a basin full of water and a towel and began to wash their feet. And think about it. Jesus washed the feet of 12 disciples. That means he washed the feet of Peter, who would deny him. And yet at that moment, he loved them. Every toe. And then Judas, who would betray him who even as he was loving him in that evening, removing the cake mud of those feet, because the custom was that somebody, every house that had a good host, will have someone 
usually a child or a woman or a non-Jew that would uh, take the uh, position of a servant to wash the feet of the guests. But in this case, Jesus, the head of that household, of that community, he himself did that for them. Not loving who he was convenient to love, but loving all of them. All of them. He provides that context. So as we think of that new commandment, to love, not just love, but to love the way he loved us, it's a challenging thing, isn't it? How do you love in such a way? And in fact, when you think about it, that law, that love is a law, it's a commandment, that creates a problem because can we force someone to love? I mean, I tried it raising two, two kids. It's like, you got to love your sister. You got to love your brother. And that never went very well. How do you force someone to love? It's a commandment. How does that work? John Sanford puts it this way in speaking the challenge that that uh, brings to us. He says, the difficulty from a psychological point of view with this command is that love cannot be willed. The person who tries to love by a mere act of will is likely to wind up with a facade that looks like he or she is loving, but with a shadow side hidden in the unconscious that negates it. Love must come from the heart. If it is to be genuine, it cannot be pretend, not even with the best of intentions. So how do we love? If it can be forced, but it is a commandment, how does that work for us? Even as Jesus has raised the bar of what love means for us, and even as he lays upon the disciples the challenge that it is by the love that you have for one another that people will know that you are my disciples. Well, one of the things that are key and so important and that make this commandment new, not only the context, but the source of the commandment. Look at uh, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 13, right there. And I think this is key in understanding this. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. The source of this love, Jesus wasn't even focusing on the disciples, apparently. Obviously, he was focusing on them because it was their feet that he was washing. But what he knew that allowed him to do that is that he knew who he was. That he knew where he had come from and where he would go even at the end. That the Father had given unto him all things. And think about that. What that means is that, and I'm certainly glad that uh, Jesus is not having to just focus on me even as he's seeing me so that he can love me, but he's actually seeing the love for the Father and the Father's love for him. It's almost like there is this deep, passionate commitment between the first, second, between the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity, and we're just caught up in the middle of that 
commitment and that love. And we receive the benefits of that. I remember in Dallas, in inner city Dallas, we had this uh, young guy, his name was Enrique. He was about six, seven years old, but he looked, he was about four. He was a little person. And we, everybody always, when it was a, a birthday party and a, a time to hit the piñata, everybody wanted Enrique to grab a stick and hit the piñata as hard as he could. They would lower it. But he never, he never wanted to do that. He wanted nothing with the stick. And he would always pass it along to the big guys. But you would always find Enrique really low to the ground right under the piñata. He didn't want to hit it. He wanted to be right there when it happened. And so when we are being loved by Christ, we are right there being caught between this commitment, this love between the first and the second person of the Trinity. That is the source. That is what we have. And in fact, that is what empowers us to love with a love like no other. In chapter 16, these are the words of Jesus and this brings even uh, closer to us how this can happen for us to love in such a way. Chapter 16, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. That was the thing that was worrying them, that was making them feel so tense. For I, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. We notice who is willing here. It's not the disciple. It's not the person. It is the Spirit willing that which belongs to Christ. Did you see that? He will guide you. He will glorify me. He will take that which is mine and declare it to you. Now, the mystery here is that even though it is the Spirit willing, that which belongs to Jesus, that does not annul or deny our own will. This is the beauty of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Is that it is like two wills Meaning, like two rivers coming and meeting and becoming one river. Two wills becoming one will. So that which is the will of the Spirit, which points us to Christ, becomes my will. Becomes my thing that I want, that I desire, that I do. And notice that the key is not how perfectly are you loving, but actually that if we're not loving in such a way, the other ministry of the Spirit is what? that He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That that is so much ours, so, so much a part of what we now desire as we are in Christ, that when we cannot love, and when we don't love in such a way, that there is a conviction in our hearts, and there's an operation in our hearts, so that then we can repent and ask for forgiveness for not loving like this. Not because we want to fulfill an ethical demand. Not because loving like this is going to make me a better person. Because it has been placed deep in my heart by the will of Christ in me. I like what Dave Branson said about holiness. He said that holiness is 
Christ in me, fulfilling the commands and the will of Christ. And that is the beauty of this relationship. This is the ministry of the Godhead upon us. Jesus giving this love to the disciples at such a dark time, at such a confusing time, that they would not know a lot of things, but that they would know that they were loved, and that they were loved for the Father, and that they should love in the same way. Nothing would astonish a fragmented world like seeing love like this, love that is like no other. Nothing would be able to speak and to show the world, even in a dark moment of tragedy, when things go a different way than we expect, that we would see the will of Christ fulfilling us because we desire it deep in our hearts, because we know it brings glory to His name. This is an old ancient commandment being fulfilled in a new way, in a new covenant, by hearts that are not just seeking to fulfill a law, but hearts that themselves are fulfilled when we walk in the benefits of that love we received in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the helper you've given us. Father, that we are free to love, and that even when we struggle and stumble, that you have provided the grace and the forgiveness that we need to still see your glory in our lives, even in the darkest moment. For we pray in Christ's name, amen.